Hello, and welcome to The Mystic Show. I'm glad you could join me. My name is Chris Curran, and The Mystic Show is where we talk about all things unseen and otherworldly. Spirituality, mindfulness, meditation, and a lot of uh, self-help, or what you might call personal development, because that seems to be uh, the key element in this spiritual journey that each of us is on. And really, I guess that's why you're listening to this show, is because you realize that you're on your own spiritual journey. And you're trying to figure out what this life is all about and maybe even what the next life is all about. You know, saints and mystics throughout time have been unanimously clear on this one point. Ignoring the unseen spiritual aspects of your life would be the biggest tragedy. And that's why we do this show, because there's zillions of conversations happening in the world right now about all kinds of mundane and various subjects, but there's not many conversations happening about true spirituality. And by true spirituality, I mean someone who's on a spiritual journey and realizes that there's a spiritual goal and that that person wants to reach that goal. So this show, we do it every morning at 7 a.m. Eastern time. That's New York City time. And we actually replay it twice in the evening as well at 8 p.m. and 1 a.m. Eastern time. And then, of course, all the episodes are archived on our website. And our website is themysticshow.net. Themysticshow.net. You can go there and you can browse all the past episodes. And you can also call into the show live. Uh, Obviously, if it's a replay, no one's going to be here to answer the phone. But if we're doing the show live and you're on, you're hearing the live broadcast, feel free to give us a call if you want to comment on one of the topics or if you have a question for me. Um, so, yeah, and I just, I really want to thank one of our listeners. Um, and I I just read it briefly this morning, so, and you know who you are. But I just want to thank one of our listeners because um, it, she wrote me a really nice note about how the show is... Um, positively impacting her life and really thanking the show for um you know bringing a lot of these points up that she was really interested in and she mentioned how it's helping her a lot so and and she mentioned how you know your show is helping people and touching lives and it's interesting cuz that's just the little you know nugget of um, confidence and reassurance that I needed uh, this morning too. So 
So the show may touch lives, but you as a listener help touch my life as well. And it's a beautiful kind of uh, reciprocation, I think. So I'm very thankful that you're hearing this and and, uh, being a part of my journey, right? Okay, well, we're ready to jump right in here because we do have a guest coming on in about 20, 25 minutes. We have a special guest and a special topic. But now we're going to finish up chapter 10 of our James Allen book, Byways of Blessedness. James Allen, the English mystic who we revere so much. His writings are just profound. Um, He's written 19 books, I think, total. And um, I've only read about three or four, but I I did buy the, there's one volume where you can, all, all his books are in one big book. And I did buy that one. So um, I'm kind of working my way through it. But this book is Byways of Blessedness. And this is, this is just one of my favorites. So we're reading chapter 10, which is silentness. Silentness. And just to show you how much, how little our society thinks of the word silentness, when I had, when I was typing up the notes for yesterday's episode, when I wrote, typed in the word silentness, it, it, the spell check caught it and it wanted to change it. It wanted to, it didn't recognize the word silentness. So isn't that amazing that something so important, yet it's not even in our dictionary. It's kind of crazy. So let's uh, let's begin. We're about halfway through this chapter. We're going to finish it up today. This is chapter 10, Silentness, in the book Byways of Blessedness by James Allen. It is a law universally applicable that quietness is strength. The businessman who succeeds, never talks about his plans, methods, and affairs. And should he, turned giddy by success, begin to do this, he will then commence to fail. The man of great moral influence never talks about himself and his spiritual victories. For, Should he do so, in that moment his moral power and influence would be gone. And, like Samson, he would be shorn of his strength. Success, worldly or spiritual, is the willing servant of strong, steady, silent, unflinching purpose. The most powerful disintegrating forces make no noise. The greatly overcoming mind works silently. If you would be strong, 
useful, and self-reliant, learn the value and power of silentness. Do not talk about yourself. The world instinctively knows that the vain talker is weak and empty, and so it leaves him to his own vanity. Do not talk about what you are going to do, but do it, and let your finished work speak for itself. Do not waste your forces in criticizing and disparaging the work of others, but set about to do your own work thoroughly and well. The worst work with earnestness and sweetness behind it, is altogether better than barking at others. While you are disparaging the work of others, you are neglecting your own. If others are doing badly, help and instruct them by doing better yourself. Neither abuse, neither abuse others, nor account their abuse of any weight. When attacked, remain silent. In this way, you will conquer yourself, and will, without the use of words, teach others. But the true silence is not merely a silent tongue. It is a silent mind. To merely hold one's tongue and yet to carry about a disturbed and rankling mind is no remedy for weakness and no source of power. Silentness, to be powerful, must envelop the whole mind, must permeate every chamber of the heart. It must be the silence of peace. To this broad, deep, abiding silentness, a man attains only in the measure that he conquers himself. While passions temptations, and sorrows disturb, the holier, profounder depths of silence are yet to be sounded. To smart under the words and actions of others means that you are yet weak, uncontrolled, unpurified. So rid your heart of the disturbing influences of vanity and pride and selfishness that no petty spite can reach you, no slander or abuse disturb your serene repose. As the storm rages ineffectually against a well-built house, while its occupant sits composed and happy by his fireside within, so no evil without 
can disturb or harm him who is well fortified with wisdom. Self-governed and silent, he remains at peace within. To this great silence, the self-conquered man attains. There is no commoner error amongst men than that of supposing that nothing can be accomplished without much talking and much noise. The busy, shallow talker regards the quiet thinker or silent doer as a man wasted. He thinks silentness means doing nothing and that hurrying, bustling, and ceaseless talking means doing much. He also confounds popularity with power. But the thinker and doer is the real and effectual worker. His work is at the root and core and substance of things. And as nature silently, yet with hidden and wondrous alchemy, transmutes the rude elements of earth and air into tender leaves, beautiful flowers, delectable fruits, yea, into a myriad forms of beauty, even so does the silent, purposeful worker transform the ways of men and the face of the world by the might and magic of his silently directed energy. He wastes no time and force in tinkering with the ever-changing and artificial surface of things, but goes to the living, vital center and works therefrom and thereon. And in due season, perhaps when his perishable form is withdrawn from the world, the fruits of his obscure but imperishable labors come forth to gladden the world. But the words of the talker perish. The world reaps no harvest from the sowing of sound. He who conserves his mental forces also conserves his physical forces. The strongly quiet, calm man lives to a greater age and in the possession of better health than the hurrying, noisy man. Quiet, subdued mental harmony is con conducive to physical harmony, health. The followers of George Fox are today the healthiest, long-lived, and most successful portion of the British community. <clears throat> and they live quiet, unostentatious, purposeful lives, avo avoiding all worldly excitements and unnecessary words.
They are a silent people. All their meetings being conducted on the principle that silence is power. Silentness is powerful because it is the outcome of self-conquest. And the more successfully a man governs himself, the more silent he becomes. As he succeeds in living to a purpose and not to the pleasures of self, he withdraws himself from the outer discords of the world and reaches to the inward music of peace. Then, when he speaks, there is purpose and power behind his words. And when he maintains silence, there is equal or even greater power therein. He does not utter that which is followed by pain and tears, does not do that which is productive of sorrow and remorse, but saying and doing those things only which are ripe with thoughtfulness, his his conscience is quiet and all his days are blessed. Well, that's the end of chapter 10, Silentness. Let's just take a quick break. Welcome back to The Mystic Show. I'm Chris Curran, and thanks to uh, Anya for that uh, little musical interlude, Falling Embers. I think I played that one other time as well. That's a tremendous one. Right? She has some way of, of making her music. It's amazing. So... TheMysticShow.net is our website. Have you seen the website yet? TheMysticShow.net. And there's also our phone number there, so you can give us a call. And um, you can also use the Contact Us page to send us a little note. If you want to send me a little love note, feel free to do that through the website. And, um, you know, yesterday... We were talking about uh, the clean slate, 
right? We were talking about the fact that we um, we sort of inherit a lot of habits and conditioning from our parents and our culture and our upbringing. And uh, we're talking how it's really good to to clean that slate. But, you know, there's a entry here in this book, uh, 365 Dao, Daily Meditations by Deng Ming Dao. Uh, there's an entry here that fits perfectly into the whole concept of that we were talking about yesterday that I just described. So um, it's called, I want to read it now because it's, I meant to read it yesterday, but I forgot. It's my producer's fault. And of course, I'm my own producer, so there you have it. (laughs) Always comes back to yourself. Uh, But yeah, this entry is called Uncarved. Uncarved. Um, And I'll just read it, because if if you heard yesterday, you'll understand. And even if you didn't, you'll still understand it. Okay, uncarved. Once a statue is finished, it is too late to change the arms. Only with a virgin block are there possibilities. It's not easy to raise a child. You have to set an example all the time. Sometimes it is important for both child and guardian to understand that a child should not do certain things that the adult does. This is not hypocrisy. It is wisdom. There was once a child who responded to his father's admonitions by saying, You do the same things. The father took his son to a carver of temple figures In the yard were great blocks of camphor and rosewood. Inside the studios were deities in various stages of completion, from gods still with fresh chisel marks to brightly painted and gilded masterpieces. I am older than you, said the father. So I am more like one of these finished statues. I have my accomplishments and I have my faults. Once this figure has been carved, we cannot change the position of its arms. But you, my son, are like the pieces of wood in the yard, still to take shape. I do not want you to have the same faults as I do, so I do not let you do certain things. Look at me. Yes, you say I still do certain things, but doesn't that show how hard it is to undo a mistake once it is carved into you? Don't copy me, and don't make the same mistakes that I did. Only then will you become more beautiful than I? So there you have it. And that's exactly why yesterday we were speaking so much about the importance of um, childhood and teaching children properly. And then, of course, 
when you get older and you have all the conditioning from childhood, it's important to get rid of a lot of it or most of it. I mean, you may not be able to get rid of all of it, but I think there's um, 99% you can heal yourself. You can fix yourself. And and that's where the analogy breaks down a little bit because it's really not like a piece of wood, a wood statue where once you carve the arms, you can't really move the arms. Um, our lives, especially our spiritual lives and our mental lives, are not like that. There's really no hard, immovable arms on our mind or on our spirit. It's pretty much all movable. I mean, you you know, whatever height you are, you're not going to, you know, grow another three feet. But, um, and you're not going to change your nationality halfway through life. And, um, you know, but, so you can't change your physical form, but you can change your mental form and your spiritual form. So, that's um, that's a little bit about. Uh, I like that uncarved. That's a good. That's a good entry. And I also just because we're uh, we're a few minutes away from our guest calling, um, I wanted to read another one. I f- I found another one in here. Um, where is it now? And you you people who know me are gonna understand why I like this one. But it's called um, chess. Is it called chess? Oh man! See now I can't find it. So, if you, uh, as I look for this, did you did you hear the segment yesterday on the clean slate? And did you did you reflect on your childhood at all, or maybe some habits? that you may still have that you want to change? Did you get to think about that at all? Because if you feel inclined to think about that, then do it. Sit down, just spend five, ten minutes. Take a notebook, write some stuff down. Open up, right? So I found this other entry here. It's called Focus. And again, we're reading from the book 365 Dao, Daily Meditations by Deng Ming Dao. This is on page 282. This is called Focus. And, right, focus is so important to everything we do in life. The more we can focus on what we're doing, the better we can do it. And, of course, the... uh, the uh well it's well known to me but it this analogy that the sun shines on you right let's say you're standing outside in the sun and the sunshine hits your body and it feels a little warm you know you can tell the sun is hitting you but if you take a magnifying glass and you hold it above your hand and you magnify those sun rays you can actually burn a hole in your hand <laughs> you can burn yourself pretty bad. And really, the only difference between the sun hitting you naturally and through the magnifying glass, the only difference is focus. 
So that's how our focus really makes our intentions and our actions powerful. So this entry is called Focus. I'll just go ahead and read it. Two chess masters confront each other. Without music, chorus, or sound. Chairs do not squeak. Audience does not talk. Why, then, do people meditate carelessly? When two chess masters play, the audience is solemn. Everyone understands what is at stake. Everyone knows that the masters must be allowed utter silence and total concentration. But when it comes to people's attitudes about meditation, they assume that noisy streets, inconsiderate roommates, foul smells, and dirty rooms have no impact. After all, isn't meditation just a mental activity divorced from the realities of environment? If that was so, there wouldn't be meditation halls. If that was so, there wouldn't be places of solace. If that was so, then people wouldn't seek the quiet of secret gardens. Meditation is not a supplementary activity. It is not mere relaxation and stress reduction. It is the way to bring one's very humanity into focus. If we want to succeed in meditation, we must act in the correct setting. We need places where the air is fresh, nature is close by, and we can remain undisturbed. Then we can slip into serenity. If we can understand the need of the chess masters for uninterrupted focus, we can also understand the precise attention that we must bring to our meditation. So there you go, focus. And that's a great point about meditation. Um, And I'm pretty sure our guest is going to call any second now. Uh, That's a great point about meditation that you should do it in a place that's where you can be undisturbed, maybe closer to nature, with fresh air. And that's actually one of the reasons why um, it's prescribed to do your meditation very early in the morning. Well, there's many reasons for that, actually. But one of them is because it's... um, very quiet in the morning. And here is our guest calling. Hello, welcome to the Mystic Show. Who's this? Hi, Chris. Good morning, Miss Satya. Oh, welcome, Satya. You are on the air. And yes, Satya is our special guest for the day. So thanks for calling in. Thanks for that honor. (laughs) Yeah, this is great. Um, You know, I don't know if you just heard, we were talking about focus and... um, meditating early in the morning because 
basically everyone else is still asleep and uh and there's very little noise and it's a great time to just be undisturbed uh i mean that's one of the reasons for meditating in the morning but another reason has to do with the dawn and the the meeting of night with day like when that meeting happens there's a there's some spiritual atmosphere there and and actually it's kind of been proven by science the gravitational field of the earth is most relaxed yeah. when the when the night meets the day so anyway i just wanted to finish up that point and um and also the fact that you know the family will be still speaking and there, there won't be any disturbances right so when you know <laughs> whenever you know somebody asks you know since i practice yoga as well you know, what is the best time to practice you know, meditation and yoga at 5 o'clock? Because if you, you know, especially if you have a family and job and everything, if you don't do it at start time, you will never do it. So <laughs> you might as well just, you know, resign to the fact that you have to do it at 5. <laughs> <laughs> 5? That's late. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so this is great. Satya, thanks for joining us. I know you... um on one of the other shows, I was talking about, uh, well, I was probably talking about the fact that my wife was born and raised in India and that the culture over in India is very different in a sense that um, it's just sort of commonplace and known when you grow up in India that there's something called meditation. And, and, and so meditation is just part of the whole culture, whereas here in America, I mean, you might literally you might never even hear the word meditation until you're an adult uh that's not very uncommon at all so so um and then yeah, i made yeah. <laughs> oh then i made the statement that um that even though people grow up in a culture where meditation is very well known it doesn't necessarily mean that they practice meditation and i think i made the comment that most do not practice the meditation yeah. so you had some thoughts about that yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, you know, it, it struck a nerve, you know, <laughs> after we made the statement, I've been, you know, thinking about it, you know, why is that so? You know, because, you know, so much of, of our, you know, culture, you know, in terms of scriptures, in terms of mythology, is full of stories, you know, where people meditated, you know, ordinary people, kings, uh, saints, they meditated for so many years and then they achieved something. Um uh, so, you know, that, that, that's why I wanted to explore that, you know, with you, you know, since you are somewhat familiar with this, you know, because of your spiritual practice, which is originating from India, and you have a chance to, you know, probably meet, you know, many uh, spiritual, you know, aspirants over the years. Um, so I thought, you know, this would be a good, you know, good topic, and also kind of explore it based on my own experience, you know, you know why it is so, even... For example, even I grew up in India, and I moved here 20 years ago, and I only started meditating seriously about four years ago. So, so it, it you know, uh, uh, it started me, you know, thinking on those lines. You know, why is that? Right. And, uh, you know, yeah, so, so I, I just had some thoughts, and I wanted to, you know, uh, I guess bring up. Uh, maybe today. Yeah, I'm. I'm happy because it it is really interesting that that. You know, 
people in India, when they grow up, they hear about meditation, they read it in the scriptures, they know that all the great rishis and the saints have meditated a lot, but yet, why why don't they, or I don't know if this is where you want to start, but why don't people feel like they need to meditate? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. For example, you know, in in my own case, you know, uh, as you know, growing up in a very kind of orthodox uh, Brahmin family in South India, uh, you know, there were you know pujas and prayers and rituals at home. You know, my grandfather, you know, he was kind of the uh, you know head of the joint family uh, until he passed. So you know, it was very common. You know, you are exposed to that. You know, you used to get up early and then take a you know. A cold shower, and then you know, to you know wear certain you know clothing which is special, and then you know nobody can touch him until he finishes his puja. So it's kind of an extreme cleanliness, you know. Um, and then, so growing up, you know, I was exposed to that. And then, you know, when I was ten or twelve years old, you know, I also started learning some of the Sanskrit scriptures, chanting. Um, but you know, think, think, looking back at it, you know, what I think is, you know, a lot of it, uh, is, you know, a lot of the chants are more of a, uh, you know, more of a chanting, meaning a ritualistic chant, um, and the the meaning behind that is not really explored or thought, uh, because, for example, the meaning behind many of these chants, for example, there's a, you know. Uh, there's a universal um, mantra called Gayatri Mantra. And the, you know, when you are 10 or 12 years old, most of the Brahmin boys, they undergo a, a ceremony kind of, uh, coming of age ceremony for boys in, you know, in the Brahmin families. It's called Upanayanam, and you start wearing a sacred thread. And as part of this uh, practice, you know, you are given the special mantra, you know, to, uh, to chant along with your, you know, ritual practice. And then, you know, when I looked at the meaning of the mantra, it's so special. You know, it says, uh, I guess I'm kind of, you know, summarizing it. Uh, uh, Let's meditate on the light of the sun, which represents God, and may our thoughts be inspired by the divine light. So it, it's somewhat similar to, you know, what, you know, you and I, you know, say or, you know, pray mm-hmm. uh, and then kind of meditate on in our own spiritual practice. But what I want to say is, you know, you know, it is not, you know, this practice, this mantra chanting is not done in a meditative manner. It's, that's how it's, I mean, obviously it's meant to be, and that's how it is practiced, you know, when it originated. But in, in the modern era, or, you know, <laughs> in this era, it's not, you know, practiced that way. Um, so you kind of lose that essence of that, you know, uh, chanting. And you don't get the same effect, you know, the meditative effect uh, by just chanting it. Uh, without thinking about the meaning or ruminating about the meaning uh, or just not meditating uh, the way it should be. Right, right. Uh, like it's almost like um, you're you're do, you're doing it in a ritualistic way instead of a meditative, contemplative yes. way. Yes. Now, yes. now is, I wonder, is that... Okay, because life in India is different from here in America and typically I think it's it's much more difficult. Meaning, you know, the fact, you know, there's not... Some people just live in like little shacks and little things like there's no air conditioning. A lot of people don't have enough food and they don't have proper clothing. And it's I mean, life in India can be very difficult. And 
Do you think that difficulty of living is one of the reasons why it became ritualistic? Because, I mean, when life is really hard, it's easy to sort of, you know, life kind of can beat you down, right? And to just, and then you just might start doing it ritualistically. You think that's part of the reason? Um, maybe. I mean, it's hard to say. Although, you know, as our um, you know master, some you know sometimes says, our spiritual master says, you know, civilization is the enemy of spirituality. So the more comforts you have, <laughs> you kind of go away from spirituality. I think one of the reasons why, you know, India is, is spirituality has flourished in India is because, you know, of uh, the, the way of life and it's very basic and very minimal comforts and very, you know, most people are poor. Um, so that has, I'm sure, so that has something to do with it. But why it turned into more of a ritualistic practice, you know, that's, that's really hard to say. And I think we will have to probably do a show and explore it with, you know, some really uh, learned scholars who have studied this right, <laughs> in greater yeah. detail. Yeah, but you would think, you know, opposite should be the case. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good question, though. <laughs> so, now, when you were about 10 years old and you started doing this chanting, uh, you did, did you not know the meaning of what you were chanting? Well... Uh, the, the mantra I was given was was a very simple mantra. It is, you know, it is just name of one of you know one of our you know uh, gods. So, <clears throat> um, so there's no really, there, you know, I know the meaning. So it, you know, there's no really in-depth meaning to it. So it was more of, a, a, you know, how many times you say, you know, that's supposed to give you special powers. For example, you know, I think the Sanskrit scholar who taught me these things. Uh, is not really, I can tell, is not really spiritual, and some of he, he had some of the extremist ideas that I can't even say on the radio. Uh, mm. So, so it was more focused on you know obtaining powers or supernatural powers, and not really, you know, what it can do to you now. You know how it can help you, you know, here and now. Uh, I think that is that is you know that is the main reason I, I believe. You know, a lot of people really don't take this seriously, even though we have this cultural heritage. Uh, is because, you know, some of these stories are really fantastic. You know, you meditate for thousands of years and you obtain something, you see God, and then you get these wounds, and then you get all these powers. When then, then, I guess, if you think about, you know, how is it going to help me now? You know, I'm here in the now. You know, I'm going to school, I'm, you know, studying. You know, how is, how is that going to help me? So you kind of, and then... You know, I started going to school on science and technology, and you kind of, oh, I mean, this is what I, I need to focus, you know, what is, you know, this is not really, you know, uh, there's not really anything there for me in terms of the chants and these uh, practices. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I think that's how, that's how it happened to me, you know, I kind of, uh, you know, n- did not, you know, did not, you know, I probably, you know, did it for a few years after my, you know, open INM or the threat ceremony. And then I kind of slowly left it out. Um, so I didn't really continue with any seriousness. Mm. Uh, so this I think that, you know, that's the reason. I think, you know, we have to, you know, that's why I want to, be, I want to know how I can do a different job with my own kids, you know, by teaching them some of these uh, cultural heritage, but also be able to, you know, give them something that is more useful to them today, in, you know, how they can use it today how it will impact them today, how it can 
how it can transform you today, you know, right. rather than in, in your next life. <laughs> yeah, and this is a point that I've been uh, thinking about and talking about for many years. I mean, pretty soon after I started uh, the meditation in the Sahaj Marg practice, and I started going to India about every year, um, I started realizing that in talking to people who grew up in India, that there was really no concept of personal development. Because, you know, before I found the meditation practice, I had spent about 10 years reading all kinds of personal development books. And, you know, I completely overdosed on Tony Robbins. And I mean, I loved all the personal development people setting goals, you know, vision work. And I really loved all that stuff. So, But when I would talk to Indian folks about it, they really didn't, there was no concept of the fact that hey, I can change my life right now. And uh, yeah. because, so so it, I think, is it, like you're saying, it's probably that lack of uh, understanding what personal development is and how powerful it is that just leads you to believe that, oh, well, it's so far, like you said, it's a thousand lifetimes in the future. I don't really have to worry about it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, I think in my own case, and there was a little bit of exposure to spirituality, you know, from the yoga uh, point of view, and also uh, my father was a great fan of Swami Vivekananda, so he had tons of books. Uh, you know, so but if you look at his, you know, teachings, I think the main essence, you know, some of that my father focused was, you know, only you can help your own life, you know, here, and nobody else can help you. I think that's what uh, I remember. You know, he kind of reinforced that to us. So and that's the only extent to which you know personal development. You know, you know, was taught at least in our own family. Well, but you're right. A lot of us focus on the ritualistic aspects, and then, you know, really not focus on the you know personal development. How you know how to improve ourselves. You know, in in the now. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think that's a very valid point. And that's one reason and that I. I think, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Satya. Yeah. <clears throat> I think uh, the another you know big hurdle I guess for a lot of people you know this is you know my own interpretation of you know why you don't kind of move on from the ritualistic into more spiritual aspects is I guess you know fear is another big hurdle you know fear you know, fear of retaliation from the gods if you stop doing what you've been doing or your ancestors have oh, been doing oh my goodness and start questioning its effectiveness something bad will happen or you know uh, if you don't do it. And if you do do it, then you will get the riches. So that's how kind of fear and temptation uh, type of thing plays, you know, plays uh, a lot into your psychology. Uh, so I think that's a big hurdle to cross, you know, for for the for a lot of Indians. Uh, I think <laughs> I think I was reading one of you know one of the Taj Mahal you know, literatures. I think even the masters said, you know, most of the Europeans come to him. You know, most of the Western people come to him. We are ready to give up religion. You know, teach us meditation, but most of the Indians come to him and say, "I want to meditate, but I want to keep my <laughs> right? my religion as well." <laughs> so. Yeah, that whole there is really I've noticed also like a very kind of superstitious uh, aspect to to you know I guess it's mainly Hinduism in in India. Yes. Um, so yeah, I mean there seems to be this superstitious aspect, like you know when you go to a temple, you have to do these certain things and. And, yes. you know, uh, there's certain holidays, you have to do certain things, and, like, I mean, when someone yes. dies, you have to do certain... Like, there's, mm-hmm. like, a zillion things you have yes. to do, and if you don't yeah. do them, then, oh, my God, it's not only the gods are going to, 
you know, come down and curse you, but it's all your neighbors. Your neighbors are going to think that you're an evil person or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Even even how we, you know, go to temples, you know, we most of the Hindus really don't go to temples on a regular basis, like, you know, Sunday church. But, you know, we go on auspicious days, on festival days, and, you know, we offer puja uh, or archana, uh, where, you know, the you know, you don't do the puja directly, you know, the priest does it in your name. So you kind of subcontract, you know, <laughs> your prayer, even, even your own prayer to the priest. <laughs> so you collect your name and your family tree, you know, um, details of your family, and then goes in the, in, to the inner sanctum and, you know, recites the mantras and does the arati. And so we are kind of just spectators gawking at the idol. <laughs> and looking around at people. <laughs> so you really don't really, you know, get a spiritual connection when you go to temples. You know, a lot of people are there. You know, you see, you know, friends, family, you say hi, bye. So a lot of talk going on, chit-chat. Um, so there's no really meditation, go, you know, you can do in most of the temples, you mm. know, because it's so busy, unless you go on, you know, uh, off time, <laughs> and you can sit on a corner and meditate. Mm. Uh, so, so a lot of some of the lot of these cultural you know, practices and you know ritualistic practices we've developed kind of act as a, a kind of a hindrance you know to go to the next level. Yes, you know we we all know religion is essential. You know that's how we get introduced to God and you know divinity uh, and all those things. But we get stuck in it, you know, because we are afraid, you know, to go to the next level. Right. It's interesting. My wife told me this story that she this is before she found her spiritual path and her, you know, her spiritual guide. And uh she said she would go to this temple every year on a certain day every year and they would say some prayer every year. And then when she finally realized what the prayer was, the prayer was something like, you know, like if you if you said the prayer if you said the prayer and then you did something like light a candle or something, you would mm-hmm. actually, you would actually achieve liberation. You would achieve the spiritual goal right there. Yeah. And so my wife was like, "Wait a minute! If if we're gonna if if you just have to do this and achieve the goal, then why the heck are we coming back here every single year and lighting <laughs> the same candle or doing the same thing? Like, so that just basically proves that there's no real belief in what you're doing because if you really believed it, then you would just have to do yeah. it once and you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, very cool. Yeah, so the whole the superstitious part of of the Indian uh religious, you know, I guess Hinduism, it, it's it's really tough because you know, even uh one time there was a book on the floor mm-hmm. in my house and it was a book from our mission and i just i moved it with my foot like about 6 inches oh yeah oh, and my wife was like oh my god don't do that i'm like do what she's like no don't touch it with your foot i'm like what are you, what are you even talking about you know so anyway apparently your feet are supposedly in quotes dirty yeah. and you're not supposed to t- you know and i'm like all right enough of this you know come on <laughs> but you know some of that you know may make sense you know in terms of how we respect our you know Teachers, you know, you you don't put your foot in front of the teachers. You know, when I first came to you know, university, I uh, mean, people in the front row were sitting, putting their foot on, you know, on the table. While the <laughs> <was teaching. laughs> I mean, I was like, oh, oh my god, you can't do that. 
That's funny. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, no. that's a lot of, I mean, giving respect to, you know, elders and, you know, teachers makes sense. I understand uh, but that, but if, but when someone like doesn't that. know the difference, yeah. like yeah, then, and and, I, and in my heart, I wasn't disrespecting anyone. I have a hundred percent respect for for that person. Yeah. So, yeah, it reminds me of because one. You know, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, in the Indian cult, you know, in the Indian uh, tradition or culture, you know, books represent you know uh, Saraswati, you know, the goddess of knowledge. So. Yes, anytime you you, you you drop it or touch it with your feet, you know, you gotta, you know, <clears throat> you have to do something, you touch it and then touch your, you know, like eyes. Right. Kind of compensate for what you did. <laughs> so you bring up a good, you mentioned a god, and, and I know in Hinduism there's like 50,000 gods or something. Um, do you, is that part of the reason why, even though, you know, the idea of spirituality and meditation is so prevalent in India... Is, does the fact that there's so many gods does that distract people into, you know, away yes. from the pure spiritual goal? Yes, yes, I think that's uh, that's also another big, big reason. Uh, even though ultimately, you know, even Hinduism says there's only one god, but you really, if you go around India, there's you know millions, hundreds of thousands. Mm. You know, there are different sects in each sect. You know, within the you know within the local population, there may be different sects. There will be you know, praying to different gods, goddesses. You know, um, so so if you if you don't, if you really don't think beyond that, then then you you will be stuck uh, in that practice for the rest of your life, unless somehow you are exposed to to what is beyond that. Yes, you know, maybe that's a practice to start. Oh, is okay. That's what is practiced in your family. But if you don't get exposed exposure to beyond that, then it's really hard. Mm. Um, uh, so you kind of uh, you know get stuck uh, at, at that level. Uh, yes, you know that that is a big you know uh, because uh, that's a big problem because you know unlike Christianity in Hinduism there are no really you know mainstream organizations. There are a few, um, but it's not like you have the Catholic Church here. You know, and millions billions of people around the world. You know kind of look up to it, so they set some standards. <laughs> okay. so there's nothing like that. You know, there are literally hundreds of thousands of different, you know, uh, organizations. organizations. Mm. Yeah, uh, temples, uh, so they practice their own system. So it's really hard. One way it is good, because you have the freedom to do it. Nobody, you can do whatever you want, pretty mm. much. But the other way is, you know, you may be stuck in it. So that's the paradox. <laughs> that's the paradox of Hinduism. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm looking at a copy of uh, the Bhagavad Gita right here, and I've read yes. several copies, and and I must say that is, I I mean, when I read it, it seems purely spiritual in nature. I mean, um, he he doesn't he doesn't get into any rituals or anything like that. It's all based on like, you know, your your thinking and your heart. So. That that book is pretty. Uh, yeah, talk about the Gita if you want. Yeah, I mean, once again, the paradox of Bhagavad Gita. I mean, just on its own, it's a fantastic book. I mean, there's a full chapter on meditation. You know, it explains exactly how to meditate, and it, it clearly says meditation is superior to severe asceticism and and the path of knowledge. So it is superior to reading the scriptures. So it's superior to practicing all these uh, ascetic practices that you see in India. But the paradox of that, you know, it is part of this big epic Mahabharata, which is 
um, which is a big story. Um, it is like uh, your um, soap opera. It's like a soap opera, Mahabharata. In the middle of this, this you know huge uh, uh, piece of work, it's amazing piece of work is is there. So if you read it as part of the story, you really don't get it unless you just focus on the the spiritual essence of the Bhagavad Gita um, and then really do a detailed study. You really don't get the essence of it. So that's that's the paradox of it. That's interesting. Like so, the whole uh, the whole story is like a big soap opera. Let's say with hundreds yes. and hundreds of episodes. But oh the, yes. But the Gita is like maybe one or two or three episodes, right? In in the middle of this yeah. big huge work. Yes. Yeah, and and I really I I I guess I was fortunate enough to just read it on its own, and I can really kind of and I was looking for the spiritual messages as well, which we yeah. know that. Yeah. When you have the intention to look for something, you're much more likely to find it. Um, yeah. So, Satya, I mean, I, I mean, it should yeah. be it should be treated like the you know Bible of Hinduism, but there are so many scriptures and you know texts in Hinduism. Sometimes it gets lost, but but for me, I mean, that is the Bible of Hinduism. You know, the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. So, Satya, we're pretty much out of time, but I just want to uh, uh, wrap up by saying that. You know, we're we're talking about how you know growing up in India and in that culture that's so you know that talks about meditation and spirituality so much that that not everyone actually gets onto a spiritual path and starts meditating. But I got to say that India that's not only India where that happens. I mean, all over the world, yeah. people are <laughs> for some reason there's this there's well maybe they're not ready they're not on that step of the journey yet but they're not ready to start meditation to start a real practice and um and and really get to work in a sense so yeah. uh so it's not just india that's what i w- i wanted to say but i really want to thank you satya for coming on and and helping us uh understand this a little bit better and we'll definitely have to have you on again we have like 18 more things we got to talk about i think <laughs> yeah so. i mean i think it you know it was wonderful thanks for giving me the opportunity yeah uh, Thank you so much. Okay, and and okay. You, since your name doesn't start with M, we can't call you uh, Mystic <laughs> Satya. It doesn't make sense. But we'll have to get another name for you, Satya. Okay, great. All right, thanks again, Satya. Day. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Well, that was wow. I mean, isn't it interesting that whole the whole way in which you know India, the land of spirituality, is is still going through a lot of the same things that the rest of the world is. You know, India is a very, very special place, but in a way, when you're born as a human, wherever you're born, you kind of have to overcome some obstacles and really put in some effort to get get down to the meaning and the essence of things and really benefit from uh, from a true spiritual practice. So... I'd love to know your story. Um, you can send us a note through the Contact Us page of the website, which is themysticshow.net. Themysticshow.net. You can see all our information there and all the past shows. So I want to thank you for listening today. And, um, and as always, move through your day. Bring some positive energy or neutral energy, which is probably even better. And... Uh, Maybe do something nice for someone else today. Maybe it's a good day for that. 
And for yourself, all I can say is keep shining. <laughs>